This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. She was about to flush the toilet. Mother? She looked back. There was a head popping out of the toilet, calling for her. Mother? The woman looked at it for a moment. Then she flushed the toilet. The head disappeared in a rush of water. She left the bathroom. Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today we have a Halloween special for, well, Halloween. And the book that we've chosen in a not massively crowded field of ghost and horror Booker books is definitely both ghostly and horrifying, as those first lines of its first story surely suggest. But before all that, since it's spooky season... James, I want to know, like, how do you, do you celebrate Halloween? Do you dress up? Do you go to parties? Because of my great age, which comes up every now and then, I'm still slightly resentful of Halloween in its an American way, kicking the ass of um, bonfire night. So that was always the big one for us growing up. Mm. So Halloween was just a few apples in a bowl and then, Aww. and then firework night was the biggie a few, a few days later. But obviously for my kids, it's, it's the other way around and Halloween's their, is their big one. Yeah. Do you know, I've always, like, when I was a kid, I was always really resentful of the fact that, like, my, my parents would take me out trick-or-treating and they'd, like, let me have a costume on. But then they would put, like, really <coughs> thick tights and, like, a winter coat over it. So it was the effect was completely ruined because you couldn't tell what I was dressed at. I was just a kid in tights and a winter coat and maybe, like, a funny hat or something. Um, so I'm now compromised in my adult years by, like, probably just wearing the least possible amount of clothing on the night. That, that's, that seems to be a way these days. Yeah. Um, so we, should we move on to the book, reveal what that book of, with, the, with the head in the toilet was? Yes. Uh, it is. A Cuss Bunny by Bora Chunga, a collection of stories that was shortlisted 2022 International Booker Prize. Our inside sources, which of course we'd never reveal, uh, suggest that the winner, Tomb of Sand by Jitanjali Shri, translated by Daisy Rockwell, was pretty unanimous judge's choice but the Curse Bunny was always in the top two or three. And only this month it was announced that the book has also been long-listed for a 2023 National Book Award for Translated Fiction in America. Yeah, it's a really good year for that shortlist. Uh, Jon Foster, who was also uh, shortlisted that year, has just won the Nobel. Um, but moving back to Bora Chung, we'll say a bit about her, uh, because the last time we did a Korean novel on this podcast, um, we took on the winner of the 2016 International Prize, The Vegetarian by Han Kang. And uh, Han Kang was already well established uh, in South Korea as one of the country's leading novelists. She's already been garlanded with prizes. That's not the case for Bora Chung. At the time of her shortlisting, she was apparently... Um, actually little known even in her home country, except in science fiction circles. 
And then, yeah, so how did, yeah. She, how did she make it out into the world of International Booker and National Book Awards and things? Uh, yeah, Cursed Bunny was at a book fair and she, she was the one selling it. And her now translator, Anton Hur, approached her, um, read the first sentence of The Head, which we've just read, and said, this is fantastic. Can I translate this? And she said to him, yes, I'm the one who wrote it. You can. <laughs> so she was, that's the equivalent to sort of flogging your CDs outside the pub after a, a gig. Yeah, pretty much. It's not an easy book to categorise this. Um, it starts off with two of the most obviously gruesome tales, The Head, uh, which we've just had, where um, uh, the head pops out of the toilet and it turns out it's sort of, it's a creature forming itself out of the woman's sort of excrement and various other waste products. And... <laughs> is that a nice way of saying period blood, James? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Much nicer. Uh, no, sorry, no, I'm not screwing. No, sorry, I'm not one of those blokes. Yes, okay, period, blood, whatever. Anyway, th- when that happens, the monster goes uh, turns red. And then it's sort of around for the whole of her life. And I think, should we give a spo- spoiler alert? But what, what happens in the end is that the creature actually turns, once the woman's quite old, the creature's fully formed and it's her younger self, mm. young and beautiful, and then sticks the older woman down the toilet and flushes it. And that's the end of her. Or flushes her. She's not yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just because she's old, no, James. No, no, the it was the toilet. Oh, okay, right. Flushes Sorry. It, the toilet and the woman disappears forever. And then the second one is pretty um, odd too, which is uh, a woman who um, uh, has a period that won't stop, goes to the um, gynecologist and is recommended the pill, but then takes the pill for what the gynecologist and the obstetrician consider too long. And as a result of, slightly unexpected result, becomes pregnant. Mm. Then she has to try and find herself a husband. And there's, well, we'll, we'll come on to the yes. patriarchal ness <laughs> of some of the stories. Um, but, uh, and then in the end, she doesn't find a husband. And then the obstetrician says, if you don't, this baby's going to be absolutely not right. And, and in fact, the baby is not right in ways that we'll perhaps uh, leave for the readers to find out for themselves. Um, but anyway, from there, we get a mixture of sci- science fiction, magic realism, fairy tale, Quite a lot more gruesomeness and quite a lot of ghosts. Um, so, Joe, what did you make of this book? I love it so much. I think it's amazing. I completely understand why it's garnered the cult following that it has. All of these stories read like fables or fairy tales, even though they're gruesome. Although thinking about it, like a lot of the original um, Brothers Grimm's stories are also quite gruesome oh, really? and like horrible. Yeah. Um, but I, I think really they're so profoundly weird and you just can't tell what's going to happen in any of these stories but they lend themselves really well to I guess allegory like you you keep trying to pin down exactly what these stories represent and I kind of thought of something that you'd said um in one of our earlier episodes about trying to find um Christ's face and pit of bread. One thing I developed that Western reviewers when faced with something quite mysterious from uh, some of the J- uh, Japanese and um, Korean books we've done, try and reduce it to, oh, this is about Trump or something or, or something, you know, that's yeah. way, way too obvious. These stories are very hard to reduce to. Yeah, which, which makes them so rich. And actually I was listening to an interview with Bora and the interviewer was trying to do that thing that we're going to attempt to do. They were saying, you know, what is the coherent theme in these stories? What are you trying to say? And uh, she went, uh, the theme is, I'm so scared. I'm so confused. I don't know what is going on. (laughs) 
which I just think yeah. is so perfect because that's exactly how you feel reading these short stories. Um, and not just kind of on a surface level, but also once you start pinning down their uh, potential meanings in the form of the cruelties of capitalism or patriarchy or ideas of revenge in a contemporary society, you also just think, I'm so confused. I'm so scared. I don't know what is going no. on. Let's let's hope we've got regular listeners will know. I take a rather s- stern line on, you know, this is all about the patriarchy or, or this is about capitalism. That's like seeing Christ's face in pita bread thing. But actually these are, I think. There's yeah. a lot there's a lot of rage and specifically female rage in them, I think. What what what, what were some of your favorite stories or a couple? Okay, I love this question because because all of these stories are so weird and kind of surreal and kind of fairy tale like i think your favorite says a lot about you Uh-oh. um <laughs> i think like the the story that you attach the most meaning or significance to is probably like, i'm not going to go all kind of freudian psychoanalysis into this but i think thank you very much <laughs> i think it's like a case of transference when you're reading these stories is almost what happens and my favorite is probably um snare which is about uh, a father who finds a fox that kind of bleeds gold and that, and that's just for starters isn't it the the, the, the fox with the with bleeding gold yes um and it transpires that um his his son has like similar fox-like tendencies and the father starts trying to um feed him the blood of other animals to see whether he'll bleed gold as well and it only works when he feeds on his sister's blood and and so oh god and so this man literally like every night will take his children into this shed outside the house and let his son feed on his daughter so that he can harvest his son's blood slash gold to build a profitable empire and I don't, I don't know why this story in particular appeals to me. It's a great, it's a great story. It's a great story. I think it's and, and even that's a, 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 we're not completely spoiling this because even even that's only for starters, really. Yeah, I think maybe there's something in there about exploiting women's bodies for money that I kind of attach a lot of significance to. But also, there's just something about the specific nature of the gore that's taking place in that story that has me riveted. And something I think about sisters. I don't know if it's specifically Korea and my daughter <laughs> might, not, might not agree, but uh, of sisters taking second place to brothers as well. So essentially the, the, the daughter is kept sort of in the dark and, and, and really only exists for the son to um, you know, produce gold. Yeah. Go on, James. What's your, what's your favourite? Oh, I mean, there are, there are a lot of good ones. I know we've talked about it already, but the head is an, is an astonishing story. The, the longest story is also extraordinarily good, actually, which is, um, it's called Scars. So it starts off, with a, a little boy who's been kidnapped in a cave. So you can see the use of very, you know, familiar fairy tale elements. Yeah, a lot of children crop yeah, up in these yeah, yeah, stories. And, and orphans and and, uh, and monsters, because he has a monster that basically pecks at his vertebrae in a rather systematic way. Uh, yeah, and then it's he, called It. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the It's called It. In fact, n- almost nobody's mentioned by name, are they? No. The boy is the boy, the woman's the woman. In all the stories, we don't really find out who anybody, what anybody's called, and they're, in, in a way, just there. Anyway, the boy gets attacked by it, manages to escape, gets to a neighbouring village. You think um, uh, the bald man, as he's uh, known throughout the rest of the story, uh, at first treats him rather nicely, and you think, oh, God, thank God he's found kindness at last. No. But he hasn't, because um, he's basically being trained up to fight 
first of all, rabid dogs <laughs> and then other people. Then he escaped from that and then things take a slightly gloomy turn from there. But I, one, one thing I thought was quite interesting in, in, that, in that one was that um, in the end he does take his revenge and he kills it. Mm. And then he comes out to find that everything's disappeared. And I wondered if that suggested that in a, in a way we need monsters. Yeah, except I think there is uh, the final sentence of that story, which reads actually extremely hopefully to me, contra the idea of we need monsters. It reads, and once his tears had finally ceased, he began to walk towards the rising sun in search for that place in this world where his life was waiting for him. So that to me suggests that there is a place where you don't need to have monsters where you can exist on um, what Tennessee Williams once called the kindness of strangers. I, I mean, to me, like this boy who is an orphan has like very limited command of language, no money of his own, but is being used as a form of capital. Um, you don't need to profit on the exploitation of um, vulnerable or lower uh, classes or people. You can actually just be nice <laughs> be a decent human being yeah okay okay maybe you have shot down my theory but but there's th that world in which strangers are kind is mm -hmm. not much in evidence in any other part of the book is it it's, it's i mean it's no. fairly bleak but um there's also i think weirdly a sort of autobiographical element to some of them i mean she she talked about the embodiment that's the one where um birth control uh pill makes her pregnant and then she has to find her husband and then she doesn't and then the baby's weird. But th th there's a phrase in here, uh, a phrase right at the beginning of it, which says, uh, a fortnight later, the blood still flowed. Should she see a gynecologist? But the gynecologist's office was not a place a young unmarried woman could visit without feeling oddly guilty. Yes. And, 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 and she said in one interview that this was sort of based. You wouldn't think this was a very autobiographical story, really. <laughs> but it's kind of based on the fact that she had a period that went on and on. She went to see a gynecologist and her mother said, you know, uh, uh, you know, and she was 28 at the time, I think. Yes. Um, you know, an unmarried woman should never go to a gynecologist. And she said to her mother, but look, if I had a toothache, I'd go to the dentist. Yes. So again, there's this, I would suggest that in quite a lot of these stories, there's um, the conflict between younger and older women. Well, maybe we should kind of start um, to talk about this thematically. Mm -hmm. So this is one theory that you're really keen on. I'm very keen on that. That's um, what the head, so the head turns into a younger version of a, a younger self and flushes the old woman down the toilet. Yeah. So this is your, your, uh, theory that a lot of these stories contain a kind of generational conflict between the young and the old and maybe specifically younger women versus older women. Yeah. You buying it? Honestly, it's not something that I picked up on while I was reading. Uh, an interesting fact about the head that kind of seems to lend to your theory is that in the original Korean, the head actually speaks in a 15th or 16th century dialect. Their voice is incredibly antiquated and her thought that that wouldn't translate very well for uh, an Anglophone audience. So he just kept the head speaking in kind of contemporary English. But it does lend itself to what you're saying. And, that, and that's, I, I mean, I would suggest, I'm, I'm scared here because I'm, 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 I'm a bloke <laughs> going into a possible <laughs> lion's den. But that, 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 that struck, you know, the conflict between younger and older women is, is playing out in art culture at the, at the moment. So there's, there's a book, Hags, by uh, Victoria Smith, came out recently, which is middle, uh, basically a middle-aged woman, but only one of many books, really, um, saying to a younger woman, look, women, look, you're going to be old one day. Can you just show us a bit more respect, please? Uh, and, you know, and I know there's a lot of 
all the feminists uh, that I know, you know, the idea that Jermaine Greer should be under attack from young feminists is a, 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 at the very least ungrateful and at, and at the very <laughs> most just completely wrong. Grateful do, 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 is always a word that comes up. As, as, as a younger woman yourself, do, do, do you think that there's anything in that or am I... I think, uh, generally speaking, what I will say is that there's always, um, and this isn't just specific to feminism, I think this happens in a lot of, call them social justice movements, where uh, an older generation has advanced um, ideas of social progress for a younger one. Um, and then that means that the younger generation has certain freedoms that they take for granted, which was always the goal, which which in turn means that they never say thank you because they, they don't know that they're supposed to. And that perhaps leaves an older generation feeling slightly, um, I won't say resentful, but maybe um, unappreciated. Actually, a former booker judge, Merve Emre, has just written a really great article for The New Yorker uh, about the fact that a lot of... Um, feminist discourse recently has kind of become like a pop culture product where not enough people um, have done have done their reading essentially from the 60s and 70s to know how to apply terms like patriarchy, capitalism, emotional labor, etc. They just sling them around and eventually these words become meaningless. Um, so I, I do think there's a kind of a credence to the idea of paying attention to past generations, but I, I wouldn't kind of fall into that idea of catfight or pitting one generation against another. But I think that's kind of complicated in Cursed Bunny because um, in the head specifically, you were saying that, you know, perhaps this woman hasn't uh, done anything kind of valuable with her life except for, you know, raise a child and be um, a, a wife. Um, according to the younger self. According to the younger self, yes. Chung's very um, clear on the fact that a lot of the horror or, or psychological thriller aspects of these stories arise out of very ordinary everyday subjugation. In, in the case that we're talking about, particularly for women's bodies and minds. Um, and so to say that a younger generation is exacting revenge upon an older one or vice versa, I think to me is a slightly complicated idea because so I think it, you can't really soundbite it, I guess is what I'm saying. She's playing with a lot in these no, stories. No, I, 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 that, that is true. I mean, I think, as I say, these, book, these stories are endlessly kind of suggestive. There's so many ways of reading all of them, all of which are kind of really fun to chew over and think about, while on the surface, it's just a cracking and sometimes horrifying read. Yeah. Just, just before we leave that behind, though, my last attempt yeah. to show that it, there's something going on, the very last story, which in a way, well, it's the most baffling to me, but, but, it, but it also um, does contain this bit. Parents who destroy their children's lives, who suck the life out of their children's futures, not only for the sake of maintaining their own illusions, but also to zealously expand them into the lives of their children. Such parents can al almost be understood from the perspective of obsession. Following the words, be grateful I raised you, is the implied clause, instead of killing you or leaving you for dead. <laughs> and that, I, mean, I think, that, that, I think that, that, that answers the gratitude question quite well. I think a nice place to move on from there actually is the, the one story that kind of falls under the remit of sci-fi, the, the AI kind of question yeah. in this novel. Uh, the story is titled um, Goodbye My Love. Yeah. And it's uh, about a, a 
narrator who has these kind of android models, each a kind of um, upgraded, upgraded uh, successive newer ones. She's really attached to um, model one, which is the original one that she helped build. Um, And, um, but which is kind of really outdated and failing and needs to be constantly kind of connected to a charger. And um, anyway, she, she manages to uh, sync model one to her newest model. And so they kind of become like an integrated personality. And the story ends by the three of these bots killing this narrator. Um, But what I find really fascinating about the story in particular is that usually um, when you have this kind of Isaac Asimov tale of AI um, taking over humanity, the... The humans in the stories are always really suspicious of of this technology. Like there's a, a Channel 4 show called Humans um, that's essentially about hu- kind of human reluctance to integrate um, AI into everyday life um, to, to keep AI subjugated. There's uh, that amazing film that actually taught me how to swear, iRobot, with um, Will Smith in it. That covers that ground pretty well as well. So that's that. That's the film to blame. Yeah, exactly. For for, for what your, for your potty mouth. For what our editor Paul calls my potty mouth. Yeah. Um, but but the thing in the story is that um, the narrator really loves Model One, and actually uh, Bora Chung says that the story was originally about her BlackBerry, her attachment to her BlackBerry, and how much she loved it, how unwilling she was to let go of it. And it's true. This narrator expresses real love, like dances with these bots. Um, you know, keeps them stored respectfully, um, notices when they smile. There's no kind of suspicion in it. And uh, something amazing um, uh, I found uh, from one of Chung's interviews was she was saying that she was playing with the idea that the information that we transfer onto our technology is not neutral. It's entirely human and therefore it's filled with our own biases, hatreds, um, blind spots um and therefore we should trust it just about as much as we trust ourselves but it's sort of up to you to to decide whether that's a whole lot or not very much yes no that's right that's right because so the 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 Droids get to know it, all all her needs, don't they? They yeah. supply exactly the food she wants. Everything but she you likes. have a great theory about this. But I think the theory of mine that you liked is that that generalised fear of robots killing us is a folk memory of slavery. Mm. In a way that that, that when people had s- slaves or um, even you know s- s- like, I don't know the Mau in Kenya or something these these people that we and I, I think you know I think it's quite possible for people to be fond of their slaves and servants and so on but actually while secretly knowing they could rise up and kill us at any time really and and would be possibly justified in so doing yeah entirely I, I, justified <laughs> so, i have uh, this argument with um <coughs> with my partner very often because he keeps kind of hypothesizing like you know if if ai you know becomes so advanced that you could technically have like a humanoid kind of bot who comes in to clean the house would you and I always say to him, no, because that to me seems exactly like another form of slavery to have programmed this thing to do exactly what you need it to do, um, probably for like no pay or minimal pay um, and to give it no other source of satisfaction or sense of self 
to that, just that, subjugate that, it to your needs. But That's that just is massively basically, anthropomorphizing, isn't it? It is, but for me, it is anthropomorphizing. But it, for me, I fear that that opens up some kind of neural pathway that makes you think it's okay to do that to, to anyone or another person, another group of people. It, it's kind of precedent for something much darker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Interesting. Um, now, the other thing that we decided, because we, uh, well, I, I researched Korean horror. Yes. By, by reading um, a page called Korean Horror on Wikipedia. <laughs> and, and, and it, it and it, yeah, you know, nobody can say I slack in this, on this podcast. <laughs> but um, one of the things it said that was absolutely central to um, Korean horror cinema, particularly, uh, was revenge. Now, I know you know a bit about Korean cinema. I know absolutely nothing. But luckily... We have someone who does. We really do. Our producer, Kevin, is going to join us for a couple of minutes to uh, tell us about... Well, well, basically, is Wikipedia right, Kevin? Is 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 revenge a big thing in Korean horror? Uh, yes. Um, vengeance is a very big topic, not just in Korean horror cinema, but just Korean cinema as well, in general. Um, I think it, the most like famous, most well-known like Korean vengeance film is Old Boy. Uh-huh. which came out in around 2003 uh-huh. by Park Chan-wook. It was part of his Vengeance trilogy, um, starting with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and then Old Boy, and then Lady Vengeance. And a lot of the themes, basically, about vengeance, at least in the Korean cinema, was just the futility of vengeance. There was like this very famous quote where they, if you go seeking vengeance, you should dig two graves, <gasps> one for... Oh, yeah. Sorry, Deborah just got very excited. No, we both just got very excited because... (laughs) Because that comes up in the titular story, Cursed Bunny. It's the kind of theme of a lot of Korean vengeance movies. Like, these main characters are going to seek vengeance and it just basically ruins them. It's just like if they they would be better off if they just accepted their fate and just and, and, and the parasite, which was a, obviously an Oscar winning film, yeah, which, which I did see. But yeah, like those films can't quite remember it entirely, but that that happens in that as well. Doesn't it, it does as well. That one's a uh, Bun Jon Hu, uh, who also released his most famous film before Parasite at the same time as uh, Old Boy called Memories of a Murder. It's about detectives trying to find this person's murderer and they're not sure who it is, and they just kind of go on their own guts and just go seek vengeance instead of following the law. But yeah, Parasite also kind of deals with that. It's like um, this kind of like bitter vengeance against like the wealthy and the upper class by the working class of the Koreans. And yeah, it's a very common, yeah, it's a very common theme. It's something that's explored a lot in Korean cinema. But the working class people all, they don't end up triumphant, do they? No, that's the whole point. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. vengeance just doesn't, that's very interesting. doesn't work for anyone. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Nice to have someone who knows stuff. Uh, I mean, other, you know, film stuff. We know, we know books. Me and Joe. Should we say something? Seeing as that exact phrase, the the, the way uh, that Kevin mentioned that, it does come up in the title story, uh, where it says there's a Japanese saying. It says that, that goes cursing others leads to two graves. Um, so, curse bunny. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Yes. Um, the narrator uh, essentially. Uh, recounts story that her grandfather, although there's like a massive twist towards the end with that, uh, tells her repeatedly um, 
about her family's business, which makes cursed fetishes. And in one particular case, uh, a lamp that kind of is shaped like a bunny, um, which was made for um, the head of an owner of an alcohol company who kind of took over and ran into the ground of Friends uh, Distillery, which used to make like really beautiful, um, natural, organic alcohol. So what the grandfather says is, um, yes, his friend's competition um, is ruined because what threw a wrench into his plans was a new national food policy. At its core was the government's insistence that Korea secure its rice supply and that use of rice in in the fermenting of spirits was subsequently forbidden. The traditional method of pouring water into a mixture of hard-streamed and malted rice and letting it ferment was replaced by ethanol, an industrial alcohol which flooded the market. To make this revolting solution palatable, beverage companies mixed the ethanol with water and artificial flavouring. So what happens is... uh, competitor essentially um, starts spreading lies that the grandfather's friend's company, um, company's alcohol causes illness, is unsanitary, um, is not of good quality in order to promote his own cheaper and inferior alcohol. And the friend being unable to dispute these claims and having his business run into the ground, unable to take care of his family, kills himself. And in revenge, the grandfather makes this titular cursed bunny fetish um, and manages to get it delivered to the office of this sort of big alcohol CEO. Where the fetish, and this is where it gets weird. I couldn't actually fully understand this. Where it gets weird. It's it's pretty weird all the way through. Um, Kind of becomes several bunnies that start- They're sort of invisible. They they reproduce Yeah, that start chewing through um, the- administrative files of the business, but also leaving droppings around and generally uh, prompting the company to hire exterminators because they think that they're rats. They think they're rats, yeah. Yeah. Um, All hell breaks loose. Meanwhile, the competitor's son finds this lamp and takes it home. But because the object is cursed... And then we get this phrase, the buddy did not chew up the paper in the house of the CEO's son. It chewed up something else instead. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so uh, so that's so that's cursed buddy for you. Um, um, but I I think this is something that Anton Her says. Part of the um, appeal of um, revenge in this story, in particular, actually, as Kevin was saying as well, is this idea of the poor getting revenge on the rich or a sort of more vulnerable group of people or a wronged group of people getting revenge on um, a wealthier and careless and cruel class. But do you think that's... I think Kevin's point stands as well, which is it it doesn't end well for the grandfather. Yeah. Or or indeed for the the narrator who's ever telling the story, because the book actually ends. But by the time I sit in, in that armchair by the window... So by the time she'll be doing this, the same thing, there will be no child or grandchild to listen to my story. And in this twisted, wretched life of mine, that single fact remains my sole consolation. I close the door and walk down the hall into complete darkness. And can I give you one other big theory? I read an interview with Bora Chung where she talked of her interest in, in the times when people saw spirits and fairies and monsters and so on as real beings who lived alongside us. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that is, A, that, it, it, that is most of human history. It's only comparatively recently that we think all those things are inside us. Mm-hmm. 
And B, I think that's happening in uh, some recent Western fiction too, because um, I think Neil Gaiman apparently does it quite a lot. The one I know is Susanna Clark, Jonathan Strange, and Mr. Norrell, famous for, long-listed for the 2004 Booker Prize. Um, and she's got this thing that she calls, um, which is from C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery. And um, that, in, in turn, Lewis owed to um, a friend of his called Owen Barfield, um, at the risk of overloading this with information, and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is dedicated to Barfield's daughter, Lucy. Anyway, Barfield defined chronological snobbery as the belief that, quote, intellectually, humanity languished for countless generations in the most childish errors on all sorts of crucial subjects until it was redeemed by some simple scientific dictum of the 19th century. So we think all those people who saw spirits and trees and so on were stupid, and now we we know better. And uh, Barfield... Um, actually sees that as a great loss, that we can't do that anymore. And so does Susanna Clark, I think. And she, but she regards that, where, where has all that gone? Where has all that stuff gone? And she suggests that it's gone into fiction. So what she says is, something that we fantasy writers do so much better than the literary fiction people is that literary fiction sticks resolutely to the human, but the world seems to me much bigger than that. And so, t- t- do you see what I mean? To give things external form. So C.S. Lewis has got this book, The Discarded Image, which reminds us that, most of human history, all the things that we think took place in, take place in our head, and, and rightly, I think, <laughs> we think that, um, most of human history, people have thought that happened outside themselves. And that, um, and that fiction can restore that sense of wonder that some people think we still should have. And, and I would suggest that the Kurt Kurtzburn is, 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 is one that does. Yeah, there is an interview where Bora Chung says, myths and legends tell us what we that what we know is not all, and you should not be arrogant enough to think that your five senses can tell you all there is to feel and perceive and think. Those themes constantly draw me. And yes, that is exactly it, isn't it? Chronological snobbery. We think all we've got is our five senses, five senses in our brain, and that's all there is. Yeah, and we were speaking last night about the story, um, the frozen finger. Yeah, which is about a woman who uh, gets into a car crash. And we meet her at the moment that she's being dragged out by what's described as like a thin voice um, who who seems to be helping her, um, kind of jogging her memory, telling her that she was coming back from a housewarming. But then the goalposts keep shifting and this voice gets crueler and crueler. So she's coming back from a housewarming, but then all of a sudden she's coming back from a funeral and this voice starts kind of mocking her. Um, all the while this car is kind of sinking into water. That seems to me very specifically based on a kind of Korean ghost story about the water ghost, which is a typically female spirit that pretends to be a person before drowning their victim. Um, But you had a really interesting idea that actually what's happening to this drowning woman is that she's watching her life well, play the, the, out. The, 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 but but uh, again, uh, almost as with everything in this book, these things are not incompatible. So I, uh, my, my theory is that the, the voice and the frozen finger that's sort of dragging, supposedly saving her, dragging away from yeah. the car, says, don't you remember? You know, you've you, you obviously bumped your head because we were coming back from a housewarming party of your good friend, teacher who's moved out, into, uh, out of town. And then she says a bit later on, don't you remember? We were consoling your divorced friend. Yeah. Who, uh, who uh, her husband went off with someone else. And then later on says... Don't you remember? Um, we were coming back from the you know the tragic fun- the f- funeral of, of your friend who tragically committed suicide after her husband left her and so on. Yeah, and and 
Uh, obviously, it's all the same woman because it's got the same name. My theory is that the woman who's dying is that woman and that this is their life flashing before her eyes. So that, to me, kind of plays with this idea of like, is the monster inside you or outside you? Yeah. Because I didn't clock that, you know, on my... I, I think that theory totally works. But on my first reading of the story, I saw them as two separate entities. Yeah. You can really read it both ways. And, and also the, the the idea that we've completely outgrown um, this, the, the idea that beings exist outside ourselves rather than just inside us. I mean, two things. is one that children definitely... I think when children have night terrors and see, and see monsters, mm. they sort of are seeing monsters. It's just that they haven't yet learned those monsters are inside their head, but in a way, why should why should they? But uh, but and also before we point the finger too much at children, this is slightly free associating here. But um, apparently, seventy percent of Americans believe in angels. At least thirty percent of British people believe in angels, and not necessarily religious people either. This this idea that there are forces outside us shaping us, you know, actual beings that aren't just in our heads. It's persistent, and it's not surprising it's persistent, because that's the way human beings have regarded the world for most of human history. I think maybe maybe, maybe we've, we've talked our way through this. I mean, if you thought that podcast was a bit rambling, I defy anybody to discuss <laughs> the, these stories without rambling. And also, I think maybe as we've you know, picked at the themes, which is our way and our job in a way. Uh, we mustn't forget that this is a Halloween special. So would you, did these stories sort of unsettle and scare you? I say, I say, say to me, they unsettled me a lot, you know, from the very first paragraph that we read so beautifully of the head coming out of the toilet. Um, I think there are there's some images that I don't think will leave me for a while. I think what's great about these is that even if um, not all of them kind of unsettle you, she she has a wide ranging enough kind of um, set of devices or images to discomfort you with that one or two will. I think we are warmly recommending this for a sort of weird Halloween read, are we? Yeah, I definitely would. Okay, and while we're, while we're on it, any other book of books that might be Halloweeny? I mean, as I say, it's not a, it's not a massively crowded field. It's not known for its. Yeah. Ghost and horror stories, but there are. There's a the Little Stranger by Sarah Waters. Yeah. And you know what? I had real nightmares after reading The Butcher Boy when you recommended it to me. That's our very first podcast where we first, more or less, where we first met, actually. Yeah. I, I, I think The Butcher Boy would, would frighten you, yeah. That is a terrifying novel. And, oh God, um, His Bloody Project. Oh, yes. I had, I had real nightmares after reading His Bloody Project as well. Um. Because that contains a fairly like gruesome account of of murder and uh, it, blood it, it, as well. It, it does. So, so books that two books that we've done that literally gave you nightmares. Yeah, the Butcher Boy and his Bloody Project. Yeah, that's it for this week. You can find out more about Cursed Bunny by Bora Chung at thebookerprizes.com. and remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at the Booker Prizes. We now have a Booker Prize book club on Facebook. So head to uh, facebook.com slash the Booker Prizes to find out more. And if you decide to give Curse Bunny a go, do let us know if it gave you nightmares. Until next week, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supiot production for the Booker Prizes.